Well, this morning we are going to uh, continue our study of the Trinity. It'll be the kind of the closing message on the Trinity. Not that we've learned it all. Uh, there's much more to learn, um, but um, try to bring together some uh, details about who God is that just reveal how wonderful He is. So before we go to the time in the Word together, let's just ask for the Lord's help. Please pray. Please pray with me. Our Lord and God. You are our God and our Savior, our rock and the fortress in whom we rely. You are a comforter, you are a shelter, and you are a shepherd to be with us in the good times, but also to walk with us in the valley of the shadow of death. When things get tough and difficult, you are there. You will never abandon us. You are faithful always. Lord God, we want to learn about more about you this morning. Help me to make your word clear, to make it clear on who you are as our triune God and help us to submit ourselves to you and, Lord, understanding you to greater depths, rise to greater heights of praise to you even today. Thank you, Lord God, for revealing yourself to us, being there with us to guide us, to instruct us. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, what we want to try to do is to draw closer to the Trinity. In past messages about the Trinity, I've mentioned uh, our, our propensity to create God in our own image, and I've given you examples of that. The, obviously, uh, unbelievers are unrestrained in, in how they want to mold God into their own image, but even born-again believers can sometimes be guilty of this, not because we do so out of an attitude of rebellion, but because we're ignorant of some things that God has revealed to us that we should not be ignorant of. And that's one of the reasons we're engaging on this study of the Trinity. But our abuse of God, and I'm using that as a collective sense, our abuse of God is, is not just what we think about Him, um, but also how we attempt to use Him to support our own agendas. For example, uh, we all want God to help our team win, right? How many of you pray that your team win during a game? Or more seriously, that your country would win uh, a battle. And we do so really without any thought about God's glory or how um, to please him in that, about his kingdom. And that's, that's you could say that's a rel- rather minor th- thing, but... The manipulation of God happens with the doctrine of the Trinity as well. Um, I've heard people try to use the the Trinity as support for complementarianism. Complementarianism is the is the correct teaching that that God created man to be uh, the husband and husband of the of the family. He is the spiritual leader and head of that home, and the wife is designed to complement him in that. That that is a correct theology, but. Many have used the Trinity to try to support that particular doctrine. And while that might sound okay, and I'd, I'd have to say before I knew better, I thought similarly along those lines, um, we might think that that's not so bad or it might be okay to do that. But as we consider how other people use the Trinity to support their particular agenda, we get to see how foolish that kind of strategy is. While doing research on the Trinity, um, Matthew Barrett, who uh, has written a really helpful book called uh, Simply Trinity, he, he, he ran across books that argued for all sorts of agendas. 
the Trinity. He found some books who wanted to use the Trinity as the master plan for politics. So looking at the Trinity as a society, they want to project that onto um, onto our, our how we live and, and want to use the equality of the persons of the Trinity to say they're to, to argue for socialism and that we should all be equal and everything should be have an equity of outcome. Then he found another book that argued for the Trinity as our model for ecumenism. Ecumenism is, is the idea that you, everybody, all religions can come together and worship, worship God. And, and because there was a unity of diversity or diversity and the unity of God, they argued that there should be also there can can be a diversity of religions even while we worship the one true God. I'm not making this stuff up. Another book transfigured the Trinity for the sake of ecology. This book uh, warned that warned against ecological heresies that treat humans as superior to the planet and to, to nature. And using, again, the Trinity, they, they said that creation and humankind share the same essence, not just like the Trinity. Still another book used the Trinity to, to push sexual agendas. Some argue that the equality between the persons of the Trinity is our justification for equality between the sexes, whether in church or families or whatever. They argue that an egalitarian trinity should result in an egalitarian society. Egalitarianism is the view that that there is no headship in the home that both men and women can can lead. And yet another argued the exact same view, the one I shared earlier, that just as the father and son are equal in essence but distinct in roles, so the wife is equal as a person but subordinate to the role, uh, in role to the authority of her husband. And yet another looked at the mutual love between the father and the son and argued for what? You guessed it, homosexuality. You see how the twisting and manipulation of the Trinity to fit a particular agenda um, is it, just, just sickening. And, and one, one view might seem okay because it fits uh, our agenda or the view that we think is correct. But if I give you examples from other areas, you see how foolish it becomes to use the Trinity to justify any kind of social uh, agenda. The Trinity wasn't given to us so that we could use him to fit our social agenda. Matthew Barrett rightly concludes that this, that from, from looking at all these different books, that the Trinity is often reinterpreted and refashioned until it is now made in our image. And we treat the Trinity like the old Stretch Armstrong. I'm old enough to remember that. Remember the old Stretch Armstrong as you kind of stretch however you want them. Or a Mr. Potato Head. Like now they even have, I think, transgender potato heads. So you just make it whatever whatever way you want it. You just, you just That's how we treat God. And instead of looking at him as the potter and as us as the clay, we see ourselves as the potter and God's the clay. And that's what we're trying to do to God today. Now, our main goal this morning is to draw closer to the Trinity by understanding some finer points of the Trinity so that we might worship him in, in, in a more true sense and offer him the worship that he deserves and that we not do what other people are doing with the Trinity. Our triune God has revealed himself in the scriptures and provided us justification, sanctification, regeneration and adoption by his grace through the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's God's work, the work of the triune God. 
this wonderful, mysterious God invites us to draw closer to him through the pages of scripture to better know him and to better worship him. With God's help, that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to do so by by looking at some areas of the Trinity that are commonly misunderstood. They're easy to misunderstand because they are complex at times. Um, They are complex. And at times, if you read a theology book, there's uh, Greek and Latin that is used, which makes it even more difficult to understand some of these things. So I'll try to bring as little into that uh, this morning as possible. But but we want to we want to look at these areas and questions really that that are misunderstood about the Trinity so that we might know him better. And as we work through some of some questions that might that they do, they are complex. I want to point us back to the principles that we looked at last week or kind of resolved around last week. These seven principles to help us answer some things that are more complex. So one of a a good tool of Bible study is to allow what's clear to help you understand what's not so clear or to use. It's really scripture interpreting scripture. And here we're using conclusions, sound theological conclusions from scripture to help clarify other theological questions. So what were those? I'll just remind you of those. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit. There is exactly one God. We're going to use those at various times through the message to help uh, bring clarity to questions that might otherwise uh, remain unclear. So the first question I'm going to ask is, is how should we think about the essence and persons of God? We've established that God is triune. He's one God. He's one essence. We talk about essence. The word essence just means who he is at, at his at his core. Um, then we looked at there is the, the persons of God. So this morning, I want to dig a bit deeper into what we call the, the essence of God and the persons of God. First, the essence of God. How are we how are we to think about the essence of God. And the good news is, I want you to think simply, not simplistically, but I want you to think simply. Though the Trinity is not fully intelligible to us, there is a simplicity about the Trinity that should be ever kept in mind. And when theologians refer to the simplicity of God, they're referring to the fact that the one and only God exists in a simple fashion, in a simple essence. And, and what we mean by the word simple is that the Trinity can't be taken apart. Uh, you came here by use of a complex machine known as an automobile or a truck or something like that. That's a complex machine. A simple machine would be a lever, like a crowbar. It can't be taken apart. It's just one piece. So when we talk about the, the Trinity, we are talking about a simple God. He, you cannot take him apart and examine the parts and put it back together, put him back together. It just can't be done. So that's actually a, a comfort to us. We come back to time and time again as we understand the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we're trying to understand them, always coming back to these one simple God. Not simplex, um, but but simple in that he can't be divided into parts and, and looked at from that standpoint. We, we see the simplicity of God from scriptures such as 1 Corinthians 8, uh, 8 uh, verses 4 to 6. You can turn there uh, in your Bibles. You can see it for yourself. Um, some of these passages I will ask you to turn to and others I will read to you so we can get through uh, what we need to get through this morning to better understand our Lord. So 1 Corinthians 
8, look at verses uh, 4 to 6. Therefore, concerning the eatings of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, <clears throat> whether in heaven or on earth, and indeed, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist uh, exist through him. So we see from this verse that to confess God is one means that we confess the Father and Son as one Lord. There is a unity of God's essence that is who he is at his core. There is a unity in God's essence that is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. Another passage that we can see this from is in John 14, the Gospel of John chapter 14. I'll read verses 8 to 11. Philip said to him, that is to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. You see, the, the, Jesus isn't confusing the persons. He knows who he is. He knows who the Father is. But he's saying that he abides in the Father, and the Father abides in him. That, that's describing what we call this, this simple essence of God. They are unified together as one God. This passage, is, it, it reveals, again, that, that these distinct persons, while yet affirming one God. And again, realize that Jesus is not saying that he and the Father are one person, but that he and the Father are one Lord, one essence, which is exactly what we saw from 1 Corinthians 8. The Holy Spirit's not mentioned in those particular verses, but we could go to other passages like 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 3, where we see the Holy Spirit included in this, in this essence. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I'll just begin um, reading at verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. There's one Lord. You turn to the Lord, that is to Christ, and yet that one Lord um, helps us to, tra to transform us from one image of glory to another, from one form of glory to another. And the Lord is specifically called the Spirit. And it's interesting that if you go back and look at Exodus 34, which is what uh, Paul is referring to here, it shows that the Lord, 
that Paul is referring to is Yahweh himself. So again, it's just affirming the fact that Jesus is Yahweh, the Spirit is Yahweh, that the one true God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are one Lord, not three three lords. The Father and Holy Spirit, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three are, are one Yahweh, not three Yahwehs. And and we must add that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are are each fully God and simply God. I mean, if they're not part of Yahweh, it's not that Jesus is part of God, the Holy Spirit is part of God, and the Father is part of God, and you can put them all together and you get God, right? That that's that's not at all the biblical teaching. They are each fully God, one essence. This is the simplicity of God. So when we say that God is one, we're saying the persons of God subsist or exist in the one essence, the one undivided essence of of God. The Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct, uh, distinct as they may be, nevertheless are part of the one undivided essence of God. And another another word that is used in speaking about the simplicity of God, if you read a theology, theology book, is the, the word consubstantial, consubstantiality of God is a doctrine that helps us understand that the Son and the Spirit are of the same essence of, of the Father. You might run across that. And if you do any reading on the Trinity, you might run across the word homoousios, which is a Greek word meaning of the same being. So the Son is the same being of the Father. The Spirit is of the same being as the Father. Uh, Matthew Barrett nicely summarizes the simplicity of God for us. I just quote him. In some, sometimes the scripture speaks of the Father, sometimes of the Son, and sometimes of the Spirit. But whenever it refers to any one person, it assumes that person is consubstantial with all the others, co-eternal and co-equal in divinity, holding the one divine essence in common. The one God, the one Lord, is none other than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now I, I want us to think... Some, now that we've thought about the simplicity of the essence of God, to think about the persons of God. And when we speak about the persons of God, we are referring to, to obviously, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if you, if you search the Scriptures, you're not going to find any passages that refer to the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit as a, as a person, or use that term person, or the persons of the Godhead. But we use that term because the development of the Trinity Theologians and Bible scholars found that that was the best term to describe the biblical data that they saw. And, and they actually have, have tried to find other terms, and each of those terms don't really fit very, very well. But when we use the, the term person in regards with, in, in connected to the Trinity, we must, under, we must understand or put a little caveat next to the word person. And the reason is because we think about person, we think about all of us here. Uh, each of us is a person and each of us is totally distinct and independent. And we, we have to be careful not to project that understanding of a person back onto who, uh, who God is. Um, in other words, we have to be careful to, to use the terms that fit the biblical data. And thus, when talking about God, the person must not be equated with a human person as each person of the Trinity is relational and distinct uh, like, a, like a person when, when being, while being one full, sorry, while being fully one God, not three gods, one Lord, not three lords. So the, the scriptures 
the scriptures reveal God as three distinct persons of the Trinity. And thus we must reject any idea that, that confuse, blur, or erase the real, eternal, and irreducible distinctions between the three persons of the Trinity. So, why are they? Now we want to look at why are the person of the Trinity named the way they are. Have you ever wondered why the Father is called the Father? Why is the Son called the Son? Why is the Spirit called the Spirit? Why did God reveal himself that way? Are these just arbitrary? Like how we somewhat how we name our children or how we name our pets? They don't have a lot of meaning? Uh, I think we'll see, we are going to see that's not the case at all. God doesn't do anything arbitrarily. Everything he does is with design and purpose in mind. And so too with the revelation of himself that he gives us. Well, let's look at the Father. Why is the Father called the Father? When God reveals himself as Father, what is he revealing to us? He is revealing to us something that we need to understand. There, there is something here. And, and as every, every human being understands, a father is someone who gives life to another. To, to use biblical terminology, a father begets children. And Michael Reeves, in his book on delighting the Trinity, likens that insight to a stick of dynamite in our, our thoughts about God. And he uses it in reference to good things. But keep in mind that, that people, when they think about uh, the, the son being begotten, the father begot, begetting the son, their minds rush to apply it to the physical, the biological realm that we know as, as persons. And, and there are people like the Latter-day Saints, the Mormon church, who, who take this to mean that the father is a, is a biological father to Jesus. In fact, that he has a, a physical body. Right? And that's how Jesus became incarnate. Uh, that's how he was begotten. That's not at all what the scriptures are teaching. And that's not what God intends for us to understand. First, the father doesn't have a physical body. Second, the son, while being begotten, is not created. Scripture's clear about that. Third, the father has been the father from eternity. It's not as if he became the father at a certain point in time. So too, the son has always been the son. The core idea conveyed by the word father is that one is given life to another. By using the term father, God is revealing the fact that he is the life giver and has been the father from eternity. And the reason that Reeves finds insight, finds this insight of, of God as a father so exciting is this. He says, if before all things God was eternally a father, then this God is an inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. From eternity, he has been life-giving. This loving, life-giving characteristic is the father's foremost fundamental identity, right? that he is a life-giver. And it is in this sense that, that uh, of a father that Jesus affirms his disciples can, can rightly refer to God as their father. So in Matthew 5, 16, we, we read this. Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Well, in what sense is God their father? Not all those disciples were even regenerate at that time. In the sense that he is the creator, he gave them life, and therefore he is their father. And thus it's the father who is made of none, who is neither created nor begotten, has always been a life giver. 
And that is a key distinction when we talk about the Father. He is not begotten. The Son is begotten. We'll get more into that in just a minute. But this life-giving characteristic of the Father is very much connected with the truth that God is love. And if we go back before creation, um, th- this, is, this is who God is. Who is the Father giving life to? Who is the Father loving but that of the Son? So this brings us to, to, to ask, why is the Son named the Son? Why is he called the Son of God? The second member of the Trinity is revealed to us as the Son, the only begotten Son, um, or, or simply the, the, or the only begotten Son of God. Uh, for example, we could turn to the well-known passage in John 3.16, and I'll dovetail with that uh, verse 18 to, together. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So it's, it's important for us to understand the Son's begetting. In what sense... Has the Father begotten the Son? In what sense has the Son been begotten of the Father? And that's what we want to try to understand. So we, we know that the Son is God. So we know the Son is not created. That's what we want to keep clear. He's begotten, not created. Right? The Athanasian Creed made that very clear, and Scripture makes that very clear. The Son is not created. So how can the Son be begotten without being created? In our minds, that's a, a, a paradox or a contradiction, but it's not in the reality of God. We, we, in some unfathomable way, the Son is of the Father, and yet the Son ever has been. The Athanasian Creed is helpful here. The Son is of the Father alone, not made, nor created, but begotten. So the, the essence of the word begotten is that the father is giving of his life to the son in a way where the son has always existed and he is not created. Now some in trying to understand this scriptural revelation about the son, about the son have concluded that the second person of the Trinity became the son at a point in time and history. And, and we don't have time to dig into all the details of, of why, they, why they believe that. But if we let the clear passages and principles of the Trinity guide us, we must conclude that the Son has eternally been the Son. The Son has always been the Son. There's never a time when the Son was not the Son. And this doctrine is often referred to as the eternal generation of the Son. Not eternal in that he's always being generated, but, but, but uh, that he is generated eternally in eternity past. And in fact, it, it, it really bogs our, our minds because we are creatures in time. You understand that time did not exist before creation. So this is something happens in eternity outside of time. And even though God is, uh, has created time, he is outside of time. Right? He lives with us, but he's also outside of our realm. He does not exist um, in, in time as we know it, which kind of blows our minds. And again, it's not something that you're going to understand, but it is true. The, this, the, the um, eternal generation of the Son simply means that the Son was begotten of the Father in eternity without being created. And again, Matthew Bartlett um, has a helpful description of this when he talks about the eternal generation of the Son. He said, it is one of the most essential doctrines for a Christian understanding of the Trinity. To understand that Jesus is God, he's begotten of the Father, he's not created. He explains, 
The word generation means coming forth, and with reference to the Trinity, it refers to the Son coming forth from the Father's essence. The concept takes us to the very heart of what it means for the Son to be a Son. To be more specific, from all eternity, the Father communicates the one simple, undivided, divine essence to the Son, unquote. And, and as um, Bartlett points out, the, the biblical names by which God has revealed himself show us that the eternal generation is intrinsic to the relationship between the Father and the Son. We say it's intrinsic. That means, means you, can't, you can't remove it and that relationship still exists. That relationship has to be there or that characteristic has to be there or the relationship doesn't exist. Additional support for the eternal generation of the Son is, is found in Micah 5.2, which you know of a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Micah 5.2 says this, But as for you, Bethlehem, Epathrath, too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from, from you one will go forth to be ruler in Israel, obviously applying to Jesus. His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient of days. I will also briefly mention Psalm 2.7. Psalm 2.7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And the, and the ultimate reference there, though spoken by David in a, a sense of a prophecy, David serving as a prophet, he wasn't speaking of himself, he wasn't speaking of Solomon, he's ultimately speaking of the Son, the Son of God. And, it, and it's likely a reference to the Son's coronation as king over the nations which rage against God. It's interesting, the, note, the New Testament quotes Psalm 2-7 with reference to the Son's incarnation in Hebrews 1-5, with reference to the Son becoming a high priest in Hebrews 5.5, 5, and with reference to the incarnate Son's resurrection in Acts 13.33. So that makes some people argue that, that, that the Son became the Son at those events. But I think it's best to see those events as affirmations of the Son's eternal Sonship, and that He didn't become Son at those events. Now, how the Son is eternally generated of the Father without being created or a being of a second rank in the Godhead is not revealed to us. Robert Latham, in his book on the Holy Trinity, cautions, the eternal generation of the Son is beyond our capacity to understand. So you're talking, this is somebody who has, I don't know what his degrees are, PhD, THD, whatever it is. He's studied his whole life and he's teaching at a seminary. He is saying that, 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 that the eternal generation of the Son is not something that any of us can understand. Thus, it's a doctrine that we accept because it's revealed in Scripture, not because we can understand it. Again, it's very similar to the overall concept of, of how God can be three and yet one. We can understand the truth, but we can understand how it's true. The Father and the Son have been the Father and the Son from all eternity. There wasn't a time when the Son wasn't a Son. There wasn't a time when the Father wasn't the Father. So the eternal generation of the Son is the basis for the Son's existence in eternity, again, without being created. And, and here again, I think uh, Reeves is helpful in explaining the vital relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father is never without the Son. The Son has His very being from the Father. And this is why we why we read of the Son in these scriptures. Think about this. The reason that they're so united and yet the Father's, the, the, the essence of the divine flows from the Father to the Son is done so that <clears throat> Jesus can be 
the representative of God for us. Now, John 1.18, John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. So you notice how it's worded there. You have God. No one's seen God, but the only begotten God. And there he's not referring necessarily to the incarnation, but the fact that his, his, that his very life essence flows from the Father. The Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He's explained him that he's become incarnate. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of his glory. That is Jesus, the, 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 the Son, really, not Jesus incarnate, but the Son is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. The only way that, that these, these things can be true is if the Son's um, life flows from the Father eternally. And these verses that I read, John 1.18, Hebrews 1.3, and Colossians 1.15, uh, we often think associate these verses with his incarnation, but this, this, these verses are really talking about who he is in eternity, his eternal characteristics as the Son, and and this is the reason that the that the Father could send the Son to become the incarnate God as as God's messenger and ambassador to communicate to us God's love and to rescue us to rescue us from our sins. We know that the Father demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul tells us that in Romans 5.8. Now, we've looked at the Father, looked at the Son. What about the Holy Spirit? Why is the Spirit called the Spirit? When we speak of the Holy Spirit, we move into another realm of what I call profound mystery. We speak of the very breath of God, even while recognizing that we are talking about a God who is a spirit, so he doesn't have a breath like we have, but the breath of God is spoken of in Scripture. When we're told that God is spirit in John 4, 24, this refers to the fact that God, the essence of God, is not something visible. So when, John, when Jesus says in John 4, 24 that, that God is spirit, he's referring to the fact that the essence of God is invisible. You're not going to see him. He's not referring to the Holy Spirit. God does not inherently have a bodily form. Jesus now has a bodily form uh, of that because of the incarnation. So when we talk of the Holy Spirit, we're not referring to the invisible characteristic of God. So how can we understand the Holy Spirit? Well, first we need to understand the Holy Spirit is God and is a distinct person of the Trinity. So we must understand that, that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Athanasian Creed tells us the, the Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. That word proceeding is a very important term. The word proceeding is used to uniquely distinguish the Holy Spirit. The Son doesn't proceed. The Holy Spirit proceeds. The Son is begotten. The Holy Spirit is not begotten. Proceeding means a going forth, as explained in biblical doctrine. Um, it is a, a suitable expression to pair with the concepts of spirit or breath. This proceeding of the Holy Spirit, like the Son's generation, is eternal. There was never a time when the Spirit was not proceeding or going forth from the Father and the Son. Now, early formulations of the Trinitarian creeds noted that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, which we get from passages like John 15, 26. Later theologians would add that the Spirit also proceeds from the Son, which we see from verses like John 20, 22. And if you know study church history, you know there's a big debate over adding that particular phrase and the Son uh, to the proceeding of the Spirit. But it is biblical, and thus we embrace it. 
But keep in mind that we can know more, we can no more fully understand what it means for the Spirit to be proceeding from the Father than we can to understand the generation of the Son from the Father. These things are revealed to us in Scripture, but they're not explained to us. And, and uh, systematic theology, biblical doctrine reiterates this nicely while reminding us of the importance of what has been revealed. Scripture does not explicitly define the difference between the generation and procession, but the terminology befits the names of the name Son and Spirit. Clearly, the distinction between begetting and proceeding is purposeful and important, even if we cannot fully explain how the two modes of subsistence differ from one another, subsistence that is existence. So even if we can't understand all the, the, the distinctions between how the Son is begotten and how the Spirit proceeds from the Father, these things are still important distinctions. When, and, and keep this in mind. God is love. The Son is, is sent to demonstrate that love. The Spirit is sent to pour out that love in our hearts. So the, 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 the love of God is given by all three members of the Trinity. So I want to ask another question. Having looked into what the, the essence of God is, the, the persons of the Trinity, let's ask this question. Is there a hierarchy or a ranking of importance within the Trinity? So the Trinity is eternal and has always been. And yet the revelation of the Trinity is a doctrine, as I've mentioned, is something that has, has progressed over time. We call that progressive revelation. The Trinity, the clarity of the Trinity was not so clear in the Old Testament. There was just a foundation for it. Um, and, and so the first, the, 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 the predominance of information that we have, the revelation that we've been given about, about God is about the Father. And, and the, this revelation of God in, in both Testaments is more, more frequently refers to the Father than the Son and the Holy Spirit. And additionally, we notice that there is a frequent that, that, that frequently there is a naming order to the Trinity: Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Refer to the Father as the first person of the Trinity, and the, the Son as the second person, and the Holy Spirit as the third person. Um, so that has led some people to say that there is a hierarchy or levels of importance within the Trinity. But but notice, and we we see the the ordering for, even by verses like in Matthew eighteen, uh, sorry Matthew twenty eight nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that, that's given in that order. Um, for um, generally, it's generally given that pattern, though not always in that pattern. So these details, um, along with the understanding of how a father has authority over a son, has led some people to to, to believe that there is a hierarchy or a ranking of importance within the Trinity. And again, as I mentioned, we need to let the clear passages or clear doctrines um, help us understand things that maybe aren't so clear. So to answer the, the question of whether there is any hierarchy or ranking of importance within the Trinity, uh, I'll turn to, the, to some of the clarifying principles about the Trinity that I mentioned in the beginning. There are four in particular that are helpful. Number one, the Father is God. Two, the Son is God. Three, the Holy Spirit is God. And there is exactly one God. So if that's all the information you had, what would you conclude? Is there a hierarchy or ranking of importance within the Trinity? The answer is no, there is not. They are all God. So if the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there is one God, then 
then there can be no hierarchy or ranking of importance within the Godhead, within the Trinity. In fact, um, theologians argue that if there were a hierarchy or a ranking of importance within the Trinity, it would divide the Trinity. There would be division within the, within the Godhead because they would all not be equally God. And it would violate the doctrine of God's uh, simplicity. So we see a, a distinction of the three persons within the Godhead. We see an order that's listed in Scripture, but there is not uh, a level of importance. There is not ranking or, or hierarchy with that. And, and this aligns with what we heard explained in the Athanasian Creed. And this and in this Trinity, none is a, none is a four. That is, none of, the, none of the members are before the others or after another. None is greater and, or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, the, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. Right? So there is not to be a ranking even of, in our worship. So in thinking about the whole issue of, of is there a rank or a hierarchy, we must be careful not to misunderstand what Scripture reveals to us with the order of, of the Trinity to imply inferiority or inequity or hierarchy within the Trinity. There is an order, but that doesn't imply any kind of hierarchy or ranking. So how does, does any person in the Trinity have authority over another? This, kind of, this question flows from the other one. So based on the answer to the previous question, we need to conclude that none of the persons of the Trinity have any authority over one another. All three persons of the Trinity are co-eternal and co-equal. Again, I'll just turn to the Athanasian Creed here. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Ghost almighty, and yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Ghost is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Ghost is Lord, yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. So we need to see that the idea that somehow the Son is subordinate to the Father is, uh, is something that is wrong. In fact, subordinationism, which teaches that the Son and the Holy Spirit are of lesser beings than the Father, is a heresy that has been rejected in, in church history and we should reject as well. Um, it, it leads to, um, we need to reject it as forcefully as we would modalism or tritheism. Now, before leaving the question of authority, we need to consider how to account for the obedience of Jesus. Because there are some in evangelicalism today, such as Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware, among others. I just mentioned those because those, those may be um, kind of household names in evangelicalism and you might have one of their commentaries or systematic theologies at home. These two men are advocating that the Son's incarnate obedience to the Father reveals a functional submission of the Son to the Father that is eternal. And therein lies a grave problem. So, so how do we account for the incarnate obedience to the Son to the Father? Just, just to give you some examples of what I'm talking about. You can turn to John 5.26. I'll, I'll read uh, verses, really begin verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Or a passage like verse 1 Corinthians 11.2. 1 Corinthians 11.2. Now I praise you 
because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. God is the head of Christ. Or 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-seven and 28. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also will be subjected to the one who is subjected, who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. So these these uh, verses talk about a subjection or they talk about God as the head of Christ. So if no member of the Trinity has authority over one another, then how are we to understand texts like these? Well, here's the key. We must preserve the proper distinctions between who God is and what he does. That's very key. There's a distinction between who God is and what he does. In other words, we must not confuse who God is inherently with what God does in salvation history. Now, theologians often refer to to who God is as the eminent trinity, the eminent trinity, and to what God does in creation and salvation as the economic trinity. Now, those are larger terms. Eminent just means who God is, his, who he is inherently. The economic trinity, the word economy isn't used with the sense of finances. It's used in the sense of an, of an ordering of things. We use that word economy when we talk about home economics. Home economics isn't just about finances. It's about the whole ordering of the home. So here we talk about the economy of God. We're talking about the actions, the visible actions of God, things that he did toward creation and creating us or in redeeming us and bringing us to know him. So when we read texts that describe the son's obedience to the father in redemptive history, we should understand this obedience as an act of the economic trinity. That is what God did, what he has done, not who he is. And we don't need to use what God has done as a, and somehow read it back into the Trinity as to who he is. In redemptive history, the son willingly and joyfully obeyed the father's plan to redeem his people, become incarnate, suffer and die on our behalf, be raised again in order to accomplish the father's mission for which he sent the son. This obedience of the son to the father and the father sending the son into the world are acts of the economic Trinity. That is, that are external. These acts are outside of God. The authority of the Father and the obedience of the Son in the history of redemption do not reflect upon who God really is. The Father and the Son are totally equal. Along with the Spirit, the Son's obedience to the Father is not an eternal, is not something eternal and not intrinsic to the Trinity. So all the texts previously referenced which speak of the Father giving authority to the Son, of the Son's obedience to the Father, or that God is the head of Christ, All these verses are speaking about actions of the Father and the Son in redemptive history. None of them refer to the eminent Trinity, that is, who God really is. And this is proven by just paying close attention to the context of the verses. So like in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about what? The resurrection. Well, only the physical part of Jesus died. So he's obviously talking about what God did in redemptive history, not something in the eminent history. And you can look at the other contexts as other passages as well and and see that. Matthew Barrett uh, says that that um, that we in talking about these things, 
he says so when Paul says that that um, the head of the wife is a is her husband, the head of Christ is God. He has in view the incarnate suffering servant who fulfilled his mission by means of his obedient life, death, and resurrection as the Messiah. Yes, there is submission between the Father and Son, but the text never indicates this submission is within the eminent trinity, but always within the context of the economy. Now, why do some evangelicals teach eternal functional subordination of the sum of the Son? Well, they do that because they misunderstand the context and they try to project project what God does back into who he is. And and unfortunately, Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware um, are leading the church to think wrongly about the Trinity. Um, they see the obedience of the Son in in the economy of salvation to reflect back into the eternal obedience. And and what, what they do is they, they, they kind of redefine what it, what, a, what it means to be a father and what it means to be a son. We've already established that the essence of being a father is is what? Giving of life. The essence of being son is receiving that life. Right? But they redefine father here to mean the, the core principle of fatherhood is authority. And the key principle of being a son is submission. But that's not right. And even just clear logic shows that. You can be a son, but not be obedient. And you're still a son. You're just a disobedient son. So it's, it, it shows us that, that that is a redefinition of what it means to be the father and what it meant for the son to be the son. The, the, the key distinction between the father and the son is that the son is begotten or generated of the father. The father is unbegotten. And, and there's nothing in the Bible directly or, that says directly or indirectly that the son is functionally subordinate to the father in eternity. He is functionally subordinate in his humanity, in his incarnation to accomplish the mission God has given him. But he is not eternally, uh, functionally eternally uh, subordinate. So when you read passages like Philippians 2 that, that states that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and that he humbled himself by be, becoming obedient, even, even obedient to the point of death, death on the cross, we, we need to understand that he's that that is speaking of his humanity and not who he is as the son eternally. For example, Hebrews five eight says that although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, if, if the son's obedience has been eternal, why would he need to learn anything? He would have already known that. He wouldn't have. He would have had all that down. If functional subordination was something that Jesus knew from eternity, then the phrases he learned obedience, he became obedient make little sense that, that, because the son would have known all about uh, obedience from eternity. There is a practical reason why I'm drawing this out. The practical reason is that holding to eternal functional subordination leads to giving the father more importance and the son and the Holy Spirit less importance. So much so that, that Bruce Ware concludes that, that Christian prayer is only to be directed to the father through the son and the power of the Holy Spirit. And and. So he argues that all prayer, all Christian prayer, should be to the Father. And again, he would add, um, you know, in he would add um, through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit, but to the Father. Now, now, no one, no one would deny that many of the prayers of the Bible are directed to the Father. In fact, Jesus uh, teaches his disciples to pray to the Father, and and yet we need to to realize that there's absolutely no reason 
one cannot pray to the Son or to the Spirit as they are co-equally God. And we see evidence of this in the scriptures. Acts 1, verses 25, uh, sorry, 21 to 25, Acts 1, we see the disciples praying to the Lord Jesus for guidance and selecting who would take the place of Judas Iscariot. And, and if you read, read, take time to read that, that you see that, that they actually pray to Jesus, asking for his guidance and making the decision on who should replace Judas Iscariot, which makes sense. Jesus chose all the other disciples that are looking to Jesus to choose the replacement for Judas Iscariot. Uh, we, it, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in Acts 7, in verses 59 and 60, prays to Jesus. Then we have Jesus' explicit permission to pray to him in John 14, verses 13 and 14. You can turn there. Just see it for yourself. John 14, verses 13 and 14. Jesus talking about prayer. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And look at verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So it's, it's perfectly within the bounds of Scripture and appropriate for you to pray to the Father, to pray to the Son, to pray to the Holy Spirit. They are one. If you pray to one, the other, ones, the other two aren't going to get jealous. They function as one God because they are one God. So that's what we have to do. Remember the quote that I read last time? I don't have it in front of me. But, but the person I quoted said, when I contemplate the one God, I start understanding the three persons of the Trinity. And as I contemplate any one of the three, or as the three, my mind is drawn back to the one. And, and so we, we can't separate the persons from the unity, nor the unity from the persons. We must hold these things together. Let me just say in conclusion this section, that the, the, the uh, statement from the Athanasian Creed, that, that Jesus is equal to the Father as touching his Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. As touching his Godhead, equal. As touching his manhood, inferior. And that's why you see the what Jesus does in submitting to the Father in the text of Scripture in his incarnation. Now, one other question. Hang with me. There's one other question I want to cover. It's very important. When the, when the persons of God act, do they act um, together in creative and in redemptive history or another way to ask this question do the father son and holy spirit work inseparably the simple answer is yes the father son and holy spirit always work together when we think about the person of the trinity we must see them as distinct yet united in the one essence of god we have one god one lord one almighty as we've already said thus the trinity has one will there is one will of god there's not like one will of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Spirit, and somehow well, the Father wants to do this, Son wants to do that, and the Spirit wants to do that. There is one will of God. And so when, when, when the Godhead works, they work together. The Godhead works together. According to Athanasius, the Father does all things through the Word in the Holy Spirit. That's a common phrase when, when theologians describe um, what the, the, the acts or works of God. The Father does all things through the Word in the Holy Spirit. Gregory of Nyssa, who also defended the Orthodox view of the Trinity, said, uh, said this. He says, As we say that the operation of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit is one, so that we say that the Godhead is one. 
So we need to understand that, that the three persons of the Trinity are united and undivided in their external works because they are undivided in the Godhead. The external works are things we can see. The external works of God are what God does to and for his creation. So just as the persons of the Trinity are distinct yet inseparable, the external works of the Trinity might be distinctly identified with one person of the Trinity, yet are inseparable. Theologians call this the doctrine of inseparable operations, which is another important doctrine that helps us understand the Trinity. Whatever the, the, the Godhead does, whatever the Trinity does, they do it inseparably. And the doctrine of inseparable operations means that whatever God does, each member of the Trinity participates. In creation, all participated. It's not like one was passive and the other was active. It's not like that God made the water and the sun made the sky and the spirit made the birds. They all acted together in the one act of creation. All were actively involved in the very act of creation. The father is described as the creator. The son is described as the creator. The spirit is described as the creator. Here's another example. Consider the incarnation. Now, only the son became incarnate. It's not as if the essence of God became incarnate. Only the Son became incarnate. But don't be fooled into thinking, as Matthew Barrett warns, that, that the incarnation was the, was, was the Son gone solo. Uh, you know, here I am, I'm on my own, I'm doing my own thing, in, in conjunction with the Father, but, but on my own. No, all three persons were involved in the Son becoming incarnate. As Peter Sammons, a, a professor at the Master Seminary, explains, he says all three persons are still involved in the solitary act of the incarnation. The Father sent the Son to be incarnate. The Son is the one incarnate by the power of the Spirit. They all are involved. And so no matter what act of God we would consider, they all are involved, whether or not the Scriptures give us any indication of what the other two are doing in that. So if you have actions that are separate, then you have separate gods. They, they must work together. So when the actions or effect of the one person of the Trinity is distinctly mentioned in Scripture, you can be sure the other persons are involved in that very same action, even if we don't understand how. God acts as one because God is one. So, so these are the, the areas that are commonly confused and misunderstood and twisted. And if you will hold to these things, you will avoid the error of trying to manipulate the Trinity to support your own particular agenda. Why, why are we given all this information about the Trinity? Why? Well, number one, that you would see that the Christian God is different. He's not a God of any man's imagination. You can see all those are all around the world. There's lots of false gods. There's demonic gods. But there's only one God like this because it's... Nothing that any man or woman could come up with and and yet be consistent. If this was an invention of man, that would be we would see it. There's no way that it would be consistently revealed all through the pages of Scripture. You would not get that consistency. So why does God reveal that reveal all these details about about him to us? He does that so that we would know rightly he is the one true God. And to know him. And, and sometimes we think about sermons like this. Like what use is it? You've told me all this theology. But I've got to go home and love my wife. Or I've got to go home and, and take care of my kids. Or be a faithful employee. Can't you do something more practical? 
Well, I just want to take a step back and say we need to we need to push back against that pragmatic thinking. Right? There are places for practical sermons and practical applications. But if we look at even remember what we studied in Titus, how Titus said that sound doctrine leads to sound living. Sound doctrine must be preached for sound living. That is, healthy doctrine leads to healthy living. You don't just jump into to healthy living. You need the, the foundation of sound doctrine. So if that's true in the, in the Christian's life in general, how much more true is that when we think about God? The doctrine of God uh, formulates how we live our lives. I think uh, John Piper said something to the effect of, there's nothing more important that you think about than your thoughts about God. What you think about God determines how you live. So even if you can't draw a direct connection between how you love your wife or how you instruct your children or how you live as an employee or work as an employee back to the doctrine of God, there is a connection. There, the foundation for our lives is God. Remember, your primary goal as a Christian is to know God and enjoy him forever. So take what you've learned from this study and, and you're going to have to go back over it. I've had to. It's taken me hours to try to sort some of this stuff through. It's, it's not exactly easy, um, but it's worthy because God is worthy. Right? Think about these things. Listen to the sermon again. Pick up a, a sound theology like, like biblical doctrine or some of the other books that I've mentioned. Simply Trinity by Matthew Barrett or um, the one I mentioned before by Michael Reeves, uh, Delighting in the Trinity. And study about God. He is amazing. He is He is amazing and delightful. He is truly worthy of your worship. Let me just close by reading Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, which is the Lord's word. Thus says Yahweh, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who shows loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. Thank you for giving us wise and helpful teachers of old to help us understand things that would otherwise go by us. Lord, I stand on the shoulders of other godly men who have gone before me, as do all of us sitting here. We are all beneficiaries of the teachers which you have provided your church throughout history. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for giving us your word and giving us of your Holy Spirit to help us rightly understand the word of God. Lord, help us to think rightly about you. Lord, that we would think more deeply about you so that we would rise to greater heights of praise and worship uh, of you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.